to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Countries around the world use spyware. This is software that can be used to target devices like cell phones and allows nearly unlimited surveillance of individuals using those devices. Countries can use this software for a range of purposes. They often use it to spy on foreign individuals, just like with any other form of spycraft. They can also use it to spy on their own citizens. While spying is nothing new, new technology has changed how we do it and how these tools are used. Another change is that spyware tools are often developed, sold, and ultimately controlled by private companies. My guest today is an expert in these topics. Hi, I'm Saf Levin. I'm an associate professor of law at Indiana University Maurer School of Law and a fellow at IU Center for Applied Cybersecurity Research. I'm also affiliated with the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard and the Information Society Project at Yale Law School. I think that I focus on law and technology broadly defined with uh, a particular emphasis on national security implications of the emergent use of disruptive technology. Asaf is here to help us unpack the concept of commercial spyware to understand its past, its present, and its future. So we're going to start by talking about uh, one of your recent papers. I guess it's a forthcoming paper, Selling Surveillance. So this paper is about the commercial market for spyware. And if we could just start, what is, kind of technically speaking, spyware? That's such a great question to start with, because there is no one defined, well-agreed-upon definition of the very concept we're discussing I will give you one possible definition. This one comes from the National Defense Authorization Act of fiscal year 2023. There, Congress defines spyware as a tool or set of tools that operate as an end-to-end system or software to provide an unauthorized user remote access to information stored on or transiting through an electric device connected to the internet and not owned or operated by the unauthorized user. And then they list a set of end-to-end systems that fall into that category, which they included, among other things, those that are used to collect geolocation information, those that can record telecommunications or other audio captured, uh, those that allow the unauthorized user to collect information like text messages, files, or emails. Final catch-all is any additional criteria described in publicly available documents published by the Director of National Intelligence. (laughs) And they do so because they understand that spyware is an evolving concept Mm -hmm. and there might be other software in the future which we might want to uh, drop into this definition. Right, and we'll uh, probably talk about some examples that are driving a lot of the current uh, discussion here, but generally when we're talking about spyware, the concern is nowadays mobile phones. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be mobile phones, but someone sends me a text message, I click on a link and suddenly someone I don't know who is able to access information on my phone or figure out my geolocation where I physically am, turn on my camera, turn on my microphone, stuff like that. But it, it could also be targeting my computer or my my car or um, any electronic device in principle could be spyware. That's correct. And the reason why you, you're right to focus on mobile phones is because they're more wearable. They're not fully wearable, but they're constantly on us. And so if I am starting your microphone while you're taking your phone outside of your home, which you might not do, say, with a uh, standstill computer, 
that puts options for me as a spy on, on what information I can gather. Yeah, and the, the term spy, which you just mm-hmm. used, is a fascinating mm-hmm. one. And actually, that's my next question. What about politically? What is spyware? What, what about legally and practically? I'll just jump to one of the, the big questions. Uh, I'm sure in, uh, you touch a lot on international law and international humanitarian law and the law of armed conflict. Is spyware a weapon? Uh-huh. So uh, that's a really good question. I think that there are some who tend to characterize certain spyware technologies as being, quote, military grade. And so the, that's such a weird term. Yeah. <laughs> and so the militarization of the discourse, in part influenced by the fact that we're in the national security space, uh, has certainly generated some of that suspicion. I think that what makes it kind of falling in the ambit of, I, I want to know, again, it's all politically defined. It's not so much legally and can be categorized in that way. But what makes it kind of in the military space is the fact that a lot of the spyware that worries us the most is based on zero-day vulnerabilities. These are the vulnerabilities that we know nothing about. There, there have been zero days since the time they've been discovered, and therefore they cannot be patched by the vendors uh, of the software uh, where the vulnerability is found. And so the risk there is that they can be utilized to cause a lot of havoc. And so in the military context, in the full-on cyber weaponry, those that cause buildings to collapse and dams to shut down, those are also rooted in zero-day vulnerabilities. And so when we think about zero-day vulnerability hoarding and trade for surveillance purposes, the worry is that the next step is just to militarize it fully to a weapon. Interesting. So that's one of my questions I have for you. How is spyware different from other cybersecurity tools or exploits or things we talk about like uh, ransomware? And you see some connection or some path where these spy-focused tools, they can lead to greater uses or greater concern in the cyber realm? The entire discussion about spyware is about the trade and in, in vulnerabilities. And, and you're right that there's a trade in vulnerabilities that is not solely for the particular utilization for surveillance, but rather for ransom activity or other criminal activity. I think that what we've witnessed with the surveillance tools is that they open the door for governments, particularly governments in non-democratic or not sufficiently democratic states to utilize these technologies to then cause grave human rights abuses. Mm -hmm. And so the, the tools have been utilized to target academics and political dissenters and journalists and government officials in ways that are intruding on the ability to fight corruption or to protect democracy. And the, the worry then is that that is just a precursor to other grave violations of human rights um, mm-hmm. or uh, if utilized in the context of armed conflict, as you mentioned, IHL, other intrusions upon uh, kind of conflict-based environments that could further deteriorate international affairs. So that ties into another thought I had reading your paper, which is spying, espionage. These are standard tools of statecraft. Countries are constantly spying on each other and stealing secrets from each other. And we actually, in humanitarian law, international law, we, we allow this. And we want to allow this because when the United States has some visibility into what China is doing and China knows stuff about Russia and Russia knows stuff about us, 
when something unexpected happens that some people might say, oh, this is the beginning of a war. We actually know enough about each other's secrets to say, actually, no, this isn't. And it creates some amount of stability. And at, at some level, spyware could be thought of as just another tool of statecraft in line with these ordinary applications or these ordinary uses. But it sounds from what you just said that there's a greater concern. Ordinarily, when the United States is trying to keep tabs on what Russia is doing. It's not trying to keep tabs on what thousands of Russian academics are doing or hack into a specific individual's phone in order to, frankly, murder them. That's not typically within the realm of statecraft. Sometimes it clearly is, and it's more problematic when it is. So is this, how is spyware similar or different as just a tool of statecraft? I love this question. So uh, we didn't plan this, but if if we had, that would be the first question I would want you to ask me. So uh, first, let me shamelessly plug my forthcoming book, uh, The International of Intelligence, The World of Spycraft and the Law of Nations, coming out with Oxford University Press at the start of next year, where I've grappled precisely with this, with uh, the functions of intelligence in public world order. And you're absolutely right that intelligence plays a dual role it can be a stabilizing factor in international affairs, exactly in the way you've mentioned it. That is, the more the pinnacle elites are aware of the risks posed by their adversaries, the less likely they are to engage in risky behavior that is based more on their suspicions rather than on known facts. And the more likely they are to engage in cooperative behavior that is equally risky because they can trust that through intelligence they'll identify surprise attacks. Intelligence, however, is also destabilizing because when a country like Germany learns that Obama has been spying on Merkel, they say that spies don't spy on friends and it's really <laughs> unhappy and unfortunate that you engage in such behavior. And in more extreme scenarios, intelligence gathering might be a precursor for a surprise attack. And so there's a worry of a security dilemma whereby we just spiral into further violence. The same is also true for spyware, which is a dual-use technology. It can be used for the good, it can be used for the bad, and the ability to regulate dual-use technology is really, really hard. And one mm -hmm. example of that comes from the original question you asked me about definition, because the definition I read to you could equally apply to certain penetration testing technology mm -hmm. or surveillance used for the purpose of identifying vulnerabilities to patch them. And so how do we define the technology that we want to curtail in such a way that we don't take away all the benefits with, with the negatives? Yeah, that, that's a, such a powerful point. If you have your iPhone set to automatically back up to the cloud, wait, that's an end-to-end -end system for copying all the information off the phone. Or what about uh, if you're a parent and you have locate my phone enabled so you, you know where your child is, or just so that if your phone gets stolen, you can disable it. Those are pretty close to and likely fall within that statutory definition. And so there's a, an agreement called the Wassenaar Arrangement, which is precisely to regulate the trade in dual-use technologies. And going back to the 2010s, governments, parties to the Wassenaar Arrangements, which is a voluntary regime on export controls for these technologies, have struggled with defining these kinds of tools. IP network intrusion tools is one of the names they used, and the definitions were not perfect, and the cybersecurity community pushed back on those definitions. And it took near a decade for experts 
export control regimes to settle on something that leaves sufficient discretion for the export control and licensing entities mm -hmm. to engage in a case-by-case -case analysis of excluding or including particular software based on the company, based on the tools, usage functions, and so on. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a very complex engagement and process. So let's... Uh start turning a bit more directly to the paper that you're visiting us uh, to present. Where does spyware come from? Who, who develops it? And what, what's the difference, the, the word group I'm going to use twice here, <laughs> um, between the NSO group and the NSA equation group? <laughs> so uh, that's such a good, good uh, comparison. So uh, let me start by saying that spyware as a tool, as a set of tools, is being developed by a broad range of companies. Um, I pri previously worked for Privacy International. Going back to the two uh, late 2010s, we were developing the Surveillance Industry Index. Privacy International identified more than 600 companies around the globe who are developing these kinds of technologies. That said, there are some companies that have become more notorious over time. Those are the companies that we love to hate. And perhaps mm -hmm. top of that list is NSO Group. NSO Group is a company in Israel uh, run by former Israeli intelligence professionals who have developed a particular tool called Pegasus. And Pegasus has allowed exactly the kind of omnipresent surveillance that is achievable through tapping uh, mobile phones, both Apple-based and Android-based. And you wouldn't know that you were tapped, that you were surveilled. That's how strong the tool was. So in 2021, a group, a consortium of partners joined together, and they have identified a large pool of over 50,000 phone numbers that uh, they suspect were targeted by the spyware, and they were able to attribute at least some of those numbers to directly Pegasus intrusions in the past. And that what spiraled uh, NSO Group out of control. But really, reports about NSO Group's technology being utilized have been popping up in report, news reports for a long time now, including in the example you alluded to, which is Khashoggi's murder mm -hmm. uh, in the embassy in Turkey. That's very different than, say, the NSA, in the sense that here we're talking about the privatization of espionage. Instead of these surveillance technologies or hacking tools being developed by government intelligence agencies subject to some accountability through intelligence oversight, they're being developed by private companies for making private ends subject to the fiduciary duties of corporate entities. And that's really problematic. So you had alluded earlier to vulnerability equities and zero-day vulnerabilities. And there's this longstanding discussion of should the government disclose these vulnerabilities when they discover them? Why would the government, so let's just say the, the NSA here in the United States, they find a vulnerability in the iPhone operating system that would allow them to surveil suspects in other states or engage in uh, lawful and important national security activities. But they're doing this using a vulnerability in the iPhone that hackers could use, other governments could use, lots of bad people could use for nefarious purposes. So there's this long-standing question of when the government discovers these, should they hoard them for their own use or should they disclose them so that they can be fixed and the cybersecurity ecosystem can be improved? But in so doing, they harm the intelligence community's ability to do what the intelligence community is supposed to do. How does the commercial spyware industry dovetail with or conflict with that vulnerability equities process? Yeah, that's such a good question. So let me take a step back and then come back to this question. 
the context in which we're engaging in vulnerability hoarding is one that the FBI has long called going dark. That is the idea that as more and more communications become end-to-end encrypted, our law enforcement agencies are struggling to tap into those communications for criminal activity that they need in order to investigate potential crime. And so some have turned to uh, hacking tools as one way of responding. And in particular, it's been happy medium for people because it's better than demanding the companies to install backdoors to their own devices. That is the encryption wars going back for over thir- three centuries, uh, three decades. And so um, just to um, uh, give the example of that. It feels a bit like three it, centuries it at this point. Like, <laughs> like, like three centuries. So that's to give the example of Apple v. FBI, the notorious case on, of the San Bernardino uh, shooters, iPhones. There, the FBI tried to compel Apple through the All Ritz Act to um, install a backdoor to the devices. Apple said, no, that would be terrible precisely for the reasons you highlighted, that now hackers could use the backdoor we designed to Mm -hmm. hack the phones and the security of our systems. The result ultimately was that they pulled out of that case in court and the FBI just relied on an Israeli company called Celebrite, which basically sold them a spyware tool Mm -hmm. to break into those phones. And so spyware serves this function for law enforcement to be able to investigate these things properly. However, simultaneously, when we talk about zero-day vulnerabilities, What it does is that circumvents the VAP process. So you started talking about the vulnerabilities equities process. VAP is a process that exists at least publicly in the United States and the United Kingdom. We can assume that other countries do so, though they have not publicly shared theirs. In the United States, we only learn about it through a series of FOIA requests that have resulted in uh, the Obama administration, then Trump administration releasing information about it. But essentially, interagency collaboration in determining under what circumstances are we to hoard or not hoard a vulnerability. And we trust the federal agencies coming together and doing this complex analysis with the hope that they can take public policy and uh, social welfare into account. Mm-hmm. When a private company is engaging in the same exact process, they learn of a vulnerability and they decide whether to hoard and turn it into a spyware, they certainly are not thinking about public policy or social welfare. And so what worries me is that if we are to pride ourselves about the VAP and to say that a VAP is a good way of managing the need to decide the balance, when balance of equities, when to hoard or not to hoard, given the risks but the benefits, We trust the government as an accountable, democratic, subject to oversight thing to do that. We should not trust the companies to do it. And so if the if the bottom line is that the governments then buy it from the companies, the governments can themselves circumvent their own VAP process mm-hmm. because they will just buy the vulnerabilities off the market. Yep. And I guess that will bring us ultimately to some of the, the discussion about what we should do about commercial spyware. And uh, we will probably touch on President Biden's recent executive order, which in effect is kind of like the government saying, we're only going to deal with companies that are behaving in a way that we think are compatible with our values. But we we will come to that before we do. We should get into uh, what's the current state of play with commercial spyware and why is its use problematic? That is really turning directly to your paper. What's the problem here? Yeah, so in the wake of those revelations, the, the Pegasus files, a series of governments have come together and said, you know what, it's time that we begin to treat this more seriously. I think it's a little cynical. The realization was in part that some top political leaders have been surveilled using Pegasus, including 
political leaders in Europe, including heads of state and ambassadors. I think it's a little troubling that we were okay in the early 2010s and mid-2010s when it was journalists in Mexico being spied to let it slide, and mm-hmm. we finally have an international action around this. Funny how that works. Yeah, funny how that works. And yet the bottom line is that we've now seen a significant push towards regulation coming from uh, international organizations like the United Nations, but also the European Parliament and the United States government. And so I'll just mention a couple examples of the kind of policies or actions being pushed. On the European side, the European Parliament has established a committee called the PEGA Committee for Pegasus, and they're investigating the scope and reach of the surveillance tools in the European market. And they put out a draft report that's supposed to be turned into a, a full report that would set certain recommendations for the European Council to adopt certain regulations um, and guidelines for the Europeans. At their forefront is a moratorium on the industry. We just need to kill this industry, which we can get into. Is this workable or not workable? Mm -hmm. I have a lot of opinions on that. On the U.S. side, that has not been the approach taken. And so what we've seen is predominantly a focus on ex post factum ad hoc enforcement Uh, It could be done through sanctions regimes by the Department of Commerce. So we saw that against NSO Group. It could be done through private litigation. So Apple, Facebook, on behalf of WhatsApp, they've brought litigation against NSO Group in courts for violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. We can talk about that. That's an interesting process. Um, But we've also seen in the U.S., as you mentioned, some attempts to set standards. So one side of it is through the executive order. That would be procurement by the government. And another thing is through the Summit for Democracy process that just ended, the second one just ended uh, at the end of March, which is to create some international standardization, early level, what they're calling a code of conduct from the market. So that is the full menu of activity that is Mm -hmm. currently is on the table. Uh, Let's... uh briefly walk through some of these options. Um, so the the moratorium, this is the strongest, most clearly regulatory, clearly ex ante, that is before the fact. We're just going to say this stuff isn't allowed. You can't develop or use this software. It seems like that solves a problem. Why not? <laughs> so let's, let's just talk. Uh, one of the biggest proponents for that, David Kay, former special rapporteur for the right freedom of expression, has long been a proponent for this kind of moratorium. As I mentioned, the European Parliament is not pushing for it. A number of states have come out saying that that might be the right move. But defining what the moratorium is, what it covers, is the hard bit here. I think that the current discourse on moratoriums is just unsophisticated. And so which technologies? Are we just limiting it to those military-grade zero-day-based spyware, or are we also applying it to the non-zero-day spyware? Are we just saying all surveillance tools, a smart camera used, is that subject to the moratorium, or are we limiting it? And then we get back to the definitional question. Which companies, only those that pose counterintelligence or national security threat or are human rights abusing, or to all companies in the industry? Mm -hmm. And then on what basis? What is the credible information on which you're building a moratorium on? Is it a temporary moratorium or a permanent moratorium? So some have said, we need a moratorium, but only until we develop an international human rights framework that could govern this more effectively. Is it a moratorium on operational use of these technologies, or is it a moratorium also on buying them to learn how to reverse engineer them and use them for educational purposes? You can see how I'm getting at, and I Mm -hmm. don't think we are anywhere near resolving all of that. 
But more importantly, there's practicality problems with moratoriums. And the biggest one is that if the West imposed a moratorium on this surveillance tools, the need doesn't go away. And mm -hmm. so tomorrow, the buying will not be from Western companies. It will be from China and Russia, who will be developing maybe not the most advanced spyware tools, but still spyware tools that could be utilized. And there will be even less regulators. More so, it will also reimpose the encryption debate we just covered. That is, if we can't use spyware anymore, now we're back to debating backdoors on technologies which are equally problematic. Mm -hmm. How much of the focus is on government use of these technologies versus non-government? And this comes to mind for me in the context of moratoriums or moratoria because Russia in particular has a long history of non-state-sponsored state-affiliated or informally state-sanctioned hacking groups, basically uh, lots of ransomware gangs and other uh, hacking groups, I'll just call them, I, I don't like that term, but I'll use it, that are allowed to operate with impunity within Russia, basically on the tacit agreement, mess with Western systems, don't mess with our Russian systems, and you can do whatever you want. And also, by the way, several of your employees might be government officials, and uh, we might be a client of yours. <laughs> um, so so how, how much of this is about government actors versus non-governments using these uh, so systems? So most of the companies who sell spyware technologies have committed themselves to only sell it to government organs. And so how do we define that category is, is very broad. And so we've seen it being utilized by local police as much as it is by the federal government, but it is always connected with the government. And some even do what I've called in the paper a double lock system, whereby there will be one contract between the government and the company and a parallel arrangement on the international plane between the state licensing the technology and that government. So there's two locks to achieve oversight, which doesn't work, and we can talk about why that it doesn't work, where, so there's a state-to-state, -state, a G2G arrangement paralleling the corporate to government arrangement. But but the client is always in the, in the context government, the, at least all the publicly known clients. Whether or not you're able to ensure that then the government is not transferring, apropos what you were saying with Russia and certain non-state groups that might be affiliated to Russia, that the technology doesn't drip, leak into the utilization of private entity, that's on the company as part of its licensing arrangement to do the job of, of ensuring and monitoring. That's fascinating. I'd ask you to say a bit more about why companies have committed themselves in this way so forcefully uh, to only working with governments. And I, I think that it demonstrates the concern that if we impose a moratorium or we take an approach here that's going to make it impossible for these companies to do business in a more responsible way, well, there are a lot of other ways that they can do this business. Yeah, I, I, so I think, I think they understand that they, well, two things. First of all, there's no question that the biggest clients, the, the biggest contracts are governmental contracts. And so, so there, there, there is some leverage, uh, some uh, a nudging power through government procurement. Uh, so, so that's certainly one aspect of it. It's also true that the Western governments will not agree to contract with you if they also know that these technologies might find its hand in less manageable hands, like the hands of private actors. Um, so, so that's one, one, one part of the story. I also think that there's an understanding that um, with zero-day vulnerabilities, the more it's in the public domain, the less likely it is for the secret to remain secret. Mm -hmm. 
So it's in the interest of the companies not to oversell, because the more the technology is out there, the more there's risk for the vulnerability to lose its effect. Zero days are only as good if they remain zero. Mm-hmm. If, they, if, they, if we discover what the vulnerability is and the companies then patch it, your entire tool, product on the market goes away. And so there's a, uh, an expiration, kind of a life, shelf life for these technologies. And so limiting it to government might ensure also greater secrecy that you need in this industry. How well can we trust that these companies themselves are not dual use, which is to say there's a a massive black market out there on the internet for exploits and hacking activities. And do we have any sense whether NSO group, they says we're only dealing with governments and a quarter of their employees have a side gig on the, I'm not saying that they do, hypothetically, a quarter of their employees also have a side gig working on the black market under pseudonyms, working for private interests. So all these companies are subject to licensing schemes. The licensing is the bloodline of these companies because they cannot trade in these technologies. And again, we're focusing on these Western-based companies. Uh, all these countries have committed themselves to these export control regimes and we'll, we'll get to whether or not they're effective, but the regimes are in part there to ensure that the government knows who your clients are. Mm-hmm. And if the government has any suspicion that you are selling it to unauthorized clients, the government pulls your license and your business goes away. There's mm-hmm. just no business anymore. And so it is in the interest of these companies to comply with the arrangement, thereby to monitor behavior of their employees and what they're doing, even off hours on the dark Mm. web. So we've been focusing on the moratorium side of the coin. I guess you you actually gave us three sides of the coin as the different approaches that we have seen advocated or attempted. Uh, We then have the ex post enforcement-based approach. So we don't have rules regulating necessarily the use of these tools, but if you do something bad, you might be subject to civil or criminal liability. Uh, what? How effective is that mechanism? Uh, terrific. So let, criminal is a tool that is only good as criminal tool is. And we all know as lawyers and law professors is that Criminal law is not perfect to solve all your problems. Uh, It's a very particular hammer, and it's good for a very particular set of nails. And so what does it not do well? Well, it's limited to a very narrow set of actors. Uh, We've talked about the industry being large. You're targeting only the most extreme because enforcement tools are limited. Um, You can only go after a very limited set of actors. You're hoping that going after them sets deterrence effects across the industry, but the industry is crowded with secrecy in such a way that others are constant, other companies have the constant ability to rely on plausible deniability to ensure that they might continue to go scot-free despite enforcement action. It's ad hoc, it's ex post, meaning that it depends on extensive knowledge about the abuses as they're occurring. Now, if you don't know that the abuse is occurring or they've already occurred, so it's after the fact, you already have victims out there. Um, So it's not a scalable, not responsive enough solution. Also, laws are inadequate. So just take the Apple and uh, Meta's cases against NSO Group. They're relying on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, In a different podcast, on Lawfer's podcast, uh, Oren Kerr and I sit down with Ellen Rosenstein trying to talk about that is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act an effective tool 
for addressing the spyware industry. And what makes it not so effective is that Apple and Facebook are not the victims. The victims are the users. And it's traditionally the victim who can bring a CFAA civil action. Well, now they're claiming that you abused my networks, my servers, mm -hmm. uh, in attacking these devices. And so I am, as protector of these people, <laughs> am entitled to bring a CFAA crash claim. Orrin Kerr was, which is the god of everything CFAA. <laughs> Orrin Kerr, law professor at UC Berkeley That's currently. Right. <laughs> and, um, uh, does not seem to think that this has merit. Now, mm. the cases were previously debated on sovereign immunity questions. Those have been tossed away. So now we get to get to these merits. It's going to be very interesting mm -hmm. to see how the courts address these. these so I, I like to call out good topics for uh, students <laughs> who might be interested in, uh, both uh, law students, a ton that you can write there. And uh, just generally, if you're interested in the law or international relations or political science, there's a lot in the development of these laws and the application of them to these changing situations that just makes my really rich area to study. I agree completely, yeah. So, so, so that's on that side. On the other side, okay, what about the Department of Commerce bringing sanctions against these companies? And so the Commerce Department added an SO group and another Israeli commercial spyware company called Kandiru to the entity lease, find, uh, finding their activities contrary to the national security and foreign policy interests of the United States. This designation on the entity list, what it means is that it empowers the U.S. government to restrict parties from accessing U.S. origin products or technology as relating to these companies. In effect, a company on the entity list is banned from directly or indirectly obtaining items subject to the export administration regulations, such as telecommunications equipment, without U.S. government approval. So it sends a message to the marketplace, mm -hmm. don't work with these companies. Amazon, for example, cast the first stone. It de deactivated NSO Group's cloud infrastructure, claiming that NSO Group's operations violated its terms of service. Now, you take cloud from a company like NSO, how it's going to administer its products. Guess what? It's still working. <laughs> so one of the problems I see with the sanctions regimes, and we saw this in Congress, Congress ran the first public hearing on spyware last year, is that... They, the, all the um, um, congressmen and women asked, hey, is this effective? Can we use sanctions to stop this behavior? And what we've seen is that investors are really hard to educate about this problem, and so they continue to invest, and that the companies are very good at being a nimble. Mm -hmm. They um, merge and, and acquire, they transfer locations, they can constantly headquarter from somewhere else, uh, they change product names, product lines, they change brand names and brand um, uh, structures. And what that allows them to do is to evade these kinds of sanctions regimes. Mm -hmm. And when you're, as you said, they don't have a large number of clients. So if you're selling a million products a day, you can't change your product name that often. But if you're working with a small number of clients and you get a phone call, hey, we need this software, okay, we can spin up a new product. It's the exact same product, but we'll give it a new name just for you. At the smaller scale, you're able to do that to evade these sections. And there's no competition. So the the other side of the coin is also that you're the only provider in this <laughs> right. market. Yep. And so I, ha I, I need a tool. I have to work with you. Uh, you had mentioned before challenges of licensing as a tool. Um, do, do you place licensing under this similar ex post enforcement working to pull your license regime? To, to some extent, yeah, I, I, I'd say so. So in, in part because the way licensing schemas have evolved over time is in a responsive fashion 
to uh, loopholes in the licensing schema. But the problem with licensing as a scheme is that it's only as good as the weakest link. If the companies have nothing stopping them from picking up and moving to a different country, a country in which export controls is laxed, then tomorrow, today they're in Israel, and if Israel restricts them too much, then tomorrow they're in Greece, and if Greece restricts them, then they're in Turkey. And you need an international standard. That's why it becomes an international law problem, why the solution has to be some kind of a multi-stakeholder, um, um, uh, multilateral framework uh, that involves all states. And that uh, really brings us to the, the third tranche of ideas uh, that you have been articulating and exploring, this idea of standardization. And I, I think that you talk about really two different types of standardization. One is a state-level international community. Governments come together and uh, establish standards, and the other is industry-defined standards. That's right. So I, I think that for the most part, where if, to the extent that there is attempts at standardizations of this market, they have been on this voluntary level, company-based standards. And it's really being pushed uh, to a great extent by their attempt to comply with human rights general principles for business and human rights. Um, so the U.S. Department of State put out the guidance on implementing the U.N. guiding principles specifically for the sector of surveillance tools. Uh, it put this out in 2020 and take NSO Group. NSO Group said, we're complying with the U.S. guiding uh, with the U.S. Department of State guidance then uh, thereby with the U.N. guiding principles on human rights and business. And so the question is, how is that possible while also committing all these gross human rights abuses? And I think the answer is that, A, it's a voluntary regime. It's only as good as what the companies actually do to enforce it. B, there's not a lot of oversight because each of the possible actors who can engage in oversight has its own incentive structures. The licensing country is benefiting from the surveillance trade. Mm -hmm. Israel, for example, turned this into a lucrative surveillance diplomacy program, whereby if NSO Group sells... You give us the Abraham Accord. That was a finding from the New York Times. That is to say, you, Saudi Arabia, you, um, UAE, you want to buy NSO Group's tools? We'll give them to you. We'll give you a license. In exchange, you give us diplomatic recognition. Mm -hmm. And so it generates a lack of incentive structure to do a good job at monitoring compliance with basic standards. Yeah, if the if the people certifying compliance are also the people buying the tools, <laughs> they're, they're going to want to certify compliance That's when exactly they're right. seeing how they're used because they're the users. And so the only solution in my view is to start thinking about a more complex international standards and so that's that's essentially where the, where the paper ends. Uh, so let, let me say a couple things about that, maybe. One is we need to understand that there is a privatization problem going on here. And so we've privatized too much of inherently governmental functions that should not be privatized. And at the heart of it is the zero-day hoarding and, and, and trade. And so that part of the industry must be more directly governed by direct involvement of governments. And so government has to be part of that process for otherwise you're throwing the VAP out of the window. Mm -hmm. A related thing is that once we start thinking about this through a privatization lens, we can start looking at analogies in the deep privatization space in national security. 
And so the biggest example that comes to mind is private security companies. Those companies. I, I was literally thinking, <laughs> isn't this the same as private security companies? That, that's, that's exactly right, right? So in the ni- 1990s, 2000, international community sees a difficulty dealing with these private military and security companies that are known as PMSCs that are involved in detention facilities in Iraq or conducting certain uh, military operations in Afghanistan. And they have, too, been found to be in violation of gross human rights abuses, uh, uh, indiscriminate shooting of civilians, property damage, sex trafficking, cruel and human treatment in detention facilities. And so the solution was to create an international mechanism called an International Code of Conduct Association, known as the ICOCA. Mm -hmm. And the ICOCA, what it did is that it had these countries come together, set a code of conduct for the industry, and then collaboratively monitor compliance by giving accreditation to companies that meet the requirements. And then governments can say, I only contract with ICOCA certified uh, companies. Mm, right. And that's, that's the, the, the basic schema. Mm. So that sort of enforcement mechanism works very well so long as it works. <laughs> um, so a first question uh, with a, a comment, of course there's a comment, uh, the, the first question <laughs> is, what, what's the enforcement mechanism? How do we know that this actually works? Is this like nuclear inspections uh, mm-hmm. that uh, the international community does for weapons programs and power plants? Um, or is it something different? And the the thing that comes to mind, the early ransomware industry was fascinating because it was an industry. There were basically, they weren't express, um, but there there were standards. There was a code of conduct. If you encrypted someone's files and they paid the ransom, you decrypted them. Because everyone in the industry knew that once you stop actually decrypting the files, people are going to stop paying the ransoms. And if one ransomware gang uh, stopped decrypting, they would get hacked by the other ransomware gangs. And it was a very stable market for four, five, six years. It was amazing. And that's kind of been collapsing uh, more recently for a range of reasons. So these accreditation or industry standards, they can work very well so long as the industry is willing to and finds it in its interest to comply with them. Yeah, um, it's a very weird, but also apt analogy to the ransomware industry, because you're right that that it acted as an industry to the point that there was like, the old grandma who gets her phone uh, hacked through ransomware gets a phone hotline to call on how, I don't know how to pay Bitcoin, can you? (laughs) And they give her one by one direction on how to pay the Bitcoin. I think that um, what what was missing for ICOCA, why ICOCA, uh, has been criticized in part to not being fully effective is that there was no judicial body or forum where those private military and security companies can be held accountable if they persist in violating norms. Right. And so the kind of model, ICOCA-like model that I'm envisioning for commercial spyware is precisely one where the forum is set, where there can be grievance analysis and review and accountability. So it's not done on a head hoc basis like the previous tools that we've covered. And so... I think, again, if, com- if governments come together and say, we only buy from the companies that are compliant, and those companies commit to being part of this review process, then I think they can use their nudging procurement power to set the standards uh, for this entire industry. And I, I know uh, you 
you've said that this is the beginning of the proposal that you're putting forth in the paper. You're not putting forth a fully developed proposal. So I will end with current events. Mm -hmm. Um, Just last week, uh, the White House announced an executive order that is putting in place standards for procurement by the United States government of these sorts of tools, where they're only going to allow procurement under certain circumstances. Uh, Is this a step towards the sort of system that you're envisioning? Is it uh, uh, in line with what you're envisioning? Yeah, so so the, the U.S. government said that this executive order is the basis for the Summit for Democracy process, which is the one that sets this code of conduct for the industry that they're pushing for. So certainly they feel like it's a, a first stepping stone in that direction. I have my doubts, uh, as I often do. Uh, for, for starters, the executive order only deals with foreign individuals. So they're not dealing with American-based spyware companies, mm-hmm. which already puts me worrying that it's not about protecting human rights, but about protectionist solutions. Mm-hmm. So, so that's let's put that on the table. But then on top of that, the focus is only on what they call operational use. So it's not about, it's only buying it for operational use that is banned. You can buy it for other uses and let your ra- brain go wild on what that is. In addition, it's limited to credible information about whether the entity knew or should have known and whether it took appropriate measures to prevent the use of these technologies for generating risks to the counterintelligence or security of the United States, which is to be defined by the ODNI. And so it looks as, among other things... ODNI, Office of the Director Director of National National Intelligence. Intelligence. That's right. And so, among other things, it looks at whether or not the technology was used against the U.S. government or data of the U.S. government and whether it disclosed it, whether it was sold to human rights abusing countries as defined by the State Department's annual human rights reports, or or whether the company misuses without authorization data from the spyware operation, or I mentioned one last one, which is whether it was used to collect information about activists, academics, journalists, dissidents, political figures, and so on or to monitor a United States person. So only in those circumstances where there's credible information for that, can you not buy. Mm-hmm. But it is not saying you cannot buy. And so it still opens the door for the U.S. government to buy a lot of spyware that has not yet been defined as meeting these criteria. And so in that sense, you might say, yes, it's a first step, but if we don't define broadly and then impose on the industry what the criteria is, is you're not getting anywhere. You'll just get more companies coming up, mushrooming, replacing the old ones that have been banned. And those companies now sell their products to the U.S. government until the U.S. government then realizes, oh, that's bad too. Yep. Well, Safar, <laughs> about at the end of our time, I always enjoy talking to you and I always enjoy uh, these topics because they are so scary yet intractable and that shouldn't make me feel better. But as as an academic, uh, it's a great area to be working. Any last thoughts that you want to uh, leave us with? I'll just say that you're absolutely right that this is only a growing area for discussion and we'll see more and more conversations here. So uh, in the spirit of advising students, I think that there is opportunities here for students to do research work and to help develop policies around these areas. Yep, absolutely. Uh, well, Hasaf Lubin, thank you for the time. Thank you. Tech
Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleege is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at unl underscore ngtc.